0: Even in the most topsy-turvy times of politics, there was uh, plenty of laughter, perhaps some of it was gallows humour, but there was plenty of laughter and uh, fun and
1: friendship involved too. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full. I started this podcast over two years ago. On top of my wish list was today's guest, Julia Gillard. It took a while to pin her down, but as it turns out, the episode couldn't be more timely. For those progressives who are feeling a little bruised by the recent election result, Julia's wise words about courage and purpose may be just what you need right now. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, enjoy the conversation. Australia's 27th Prime Minister, Julia Eileen Gillard, was born in the Welsh port town of Barrie. When she was a child, her parents, John and Moira, were told that Julia's chronic lung problems would improve with warmer air. So to seek better jobs and to help their younger daughter's health, they became 10-pound poms and sailed to Australia when Julia was four years old, clutching a toy koala. She attended Dunley High, Adelaide Uni and Melbourne Uni, before becoming a partner at Slater & Gordon at age 29. Pre-selected third on Labor's Victorian Senate ticket in 1996, the nation narrowly missed out on Senator Gillard and Julia became the member for Lawler in 1998. In opposition she held the Immigration and Health Portfolios and when Labor won Government in 2007, became Minister for Education, Employment and Workplace Relations and Deputy Prime Minister. In 2010 she challenged Kevin Rudd for the Prime Ministership and served for three years and three days before again losing the leadership to Kevin Rudd. Among her achievements are education reform, climate change and the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Since leaving Parliament in 2013, Julie has served as a Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution, Chair of the Global Partnership for Education, Chair of Beyond Blue and Chair of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership. For a woman who once fought to get a seat in Parliament, she now has no shortage of chairs. (laughs) Julie is one of my great heroes, and not just because she appointed me as her Parliamentary Secretary in the final months of her Prime Ministership, and it is a true delight to have her on the Good Life podcast today.
0: Thank you, Andrew. It's wonderful to be here.
1: Now, this is a no-politics, no-policy podcast, so there's a huge amount we could discuss and we won't discuss today. <laughs> I want to start with an essay you wrote last year for the BBC, where you're asked to about what makes us human, and you to- chose as your theme Sears song, uh, what, makes, uh, uh, what Makes Us Human, the soundtrack to the Wonder Woman movie. And Sia's answer is that to be human is to love. What role does love play in your life and how you think about uh, a good life of service to the community? Well, I did pick that track. I was very impressed
0: by the Wonder Woman movie just because I felt it was time that young girls could see a female superhero. Obviously, I remember Wonder Woman from uh, my young years, but to see her now on the big screen uh, in quite as lavish a way as they do superhero movies these days is fantastic. Uh, For me, uh, you know, love is really about uh, family, close connections, friends, uh, the things that sustain and nurture you away from the world of work and the hurly-burly of everyday life. Across my life I've had um, this sense that from time to time I've needed to retreat, to recharge and re-energise and I can only do that when I'm surrounded by the people I care about the most. Um, so, you know, at an earlier stage of my life, uh, obviously my mother, my father, uh, both of them have passed now so I don't get to spend time with them. Uh, my sister, my niece and nephew, uh, they're now partners and my great niece and nephew, of course Tim and so many friends who have been
1: with me for so long. Do you find that you need those, particularly when you're in politics, that you needed those non-political friendships, uh, people for whom uh, there was no question of, of contestation in order to recharge your batteries?
0: Yes, absolutely. And it's not only that the love and support is unconditional, it's that they're not in any way affected by your status. So, um, all of the people closest to me have never treated me differently from when I was a backbencher to when I was Prime Minister and now to this life beyond. There's not that. Um, sense of you know formality even being overawed that can come into the relationships with others you know for a lot of people obviously meeting a prime minister is kind of a stressful Mm. moment and it's and even if you're trying to make it as non-stressful for them as possible it still is Uh, so it's great to be with people that for you know 20 30 40 years all of your life have known you in a different context and aren't
1: in any way reacting to the new status the new title. So that's love as a battery recharging uh, option, there's also love I guess as as something that propels you into making change, when I think about your reforms the National Disability Insurance Scheme is perhaps the one that's most infused with love, I think of that lovely moment with the 12 year old girl Sophie who took your your picture. Um, Do you see love as being a a powerful impetus either inside you to drive you to change or, or externally in advocating for change?
0: I would tend to use a different word just because I think it is, uh, in many ways, a different kind of emotion. Um, It's uh, an enthusiasm, a determination, a real drive to try and make things better for people. And so I haven't ever thought about that in the context of, you know, um, love. You know, I wouldn't say um, that I was infused by love of people with disabilities. It's a different emotion in my head to what I feel for uh, those closest to me. Uh, But it's still a very strong emotional driver. Uh, You don't select your causes just based on intellect in politics. You select them on heart and gut and then you bring your brain power to bear. And for me, the National Disability Insurance Scheme and making a real difference in the lives of so many millions of Australians uh, was something of the heart and the gut. And then uh, with great colleagues like Jenny Macklin, we wove the intellectual labour on top of it.
1: And the flip side to love, I guess, is, is anger and hate. Um, you wrote in your autobiography that it made you burn with anger that your father didn't get the opportunities to which he was entitled as uh, one of seven children who left school at age 14. Uh, but yet that anger doesn't seem for you to turn into hatred. In fact, you seem unusually good among people who've held the highest office in the land in, in not being a hater. Uh, how do you think about the, the ability to use righteous anger rather than the anger of retribution?
0: Yeah, I think they're two very different things. I mean, to be uh, powered by a sense of injustice, uh, as you term it, righteous anger, uh, is one thing. I think to obsess about moments in your past when you feel like you were unfairly treated is another and I've always been very conscious that you've only got so many moments of your life's time. Uh, I'm not a religious person, I don't believe in a life beyond, I believe this is it. And you've got choices about how you use it and any time you spend kind of mentally grinding an axe about someone or something is wasted time. And I felt when I was a lawyer that I saw too many people for whom an injustice in their lives had become all of their lives. You know, working at a law firm that offers a first free consultation, you see a lot of people. And I saw people who in their employment, often they had something bad had happened. They had been treated unfairly, but it would be... 10 or 15 years ago, you would be the 7th or 8th or ninth lawyer they'd seen. Really, there wasn't an effective legal remedy for them. And you felt like saying, you know, those lever arch files full of papers you're hoarding and turning the pages of, just go home, put them in the incinerator, put it behind you and you'll have a better life. And so there have been moments in my life when I've had to think back to that phase as a lawyer and say, Julia, it's time to take some of your own
1: advice. The uh, Chicago philosopher Martha Nussbaum told me on the podcast that she thinks of retribution anger as being a dumb emotion. Uh, the idea that you, you you get pleasure out of the suffering of uh, an ex-partner or somebody who's wronged you in, in, work, in the workplace. Uh, do you go so far as to see retribution as being dumb? Yeah, I do think it's um, a dumb emotion. Um,
0: at the end of the day, you're feeling it uh, and it's corroding you rather than uh, the person you're feeling it about. I mean, you know, so why spend uh, grim nights, 3 a.m.s, you know, pacing around uh, in that mode? It's not going to do you any good. It's not going to make any difference. And so it is
1: um, absolutely futile and therefore dumb. But how in practice did you you do it? I mean, I think about at the the heart at the heat the time when the the heat was on most strongly you had the ditch the witch campaign you had those awful Larry Pickering cartoons um, you had that disgusting menu at the liberal fundraiser uh, and you had just silly stuff like Ross Fitzgerald's suggestion that uh, when you met with Queensland flood victims you didn't appear to care whatever that means (laughs) Uh, how how do you address that in in practice when it's coming on the front pages of of the newspapers, which are, um, as you write, the first thing that you you looked at in the morning.
0: Yes, and looked at very early in the morning. I think my ability to just kind of keep going through all of that um, weaves together all of the things we've talked about so far. I mean, first I did get the rest and respite that came with having brief moments because you're so busy, but brief moments with uh, those I care about and who care about me. Uh, Second, I did have this dominant sense of purpose, you know, we were there to get things done and so you could kind of push through uh, even when, you know, things were quite distressing because you did want to make a real difference. And then I have always had that sense that, you know, kind of um, grinding your teeth is not going to be the right answer. I've always been a very even-tempered kind of person, I was an even-tempered kid, I was an even-tempered teenager, um, I ne- I've never been someone who's um, thrown crockery or uh, you know, screamed out loud or decided that you know, the best way of treating your staff is by yelling at them because they'll work harder. I've never met anybody who works harder because they're being yelled at. Uh, I've always been quite an even-tempered person and I think I combined that with this um, instinctive understanding that it would hurt me more to obsess on these things. Than the people who had done
1: them, uh, but then you also quote Jay Weatherall as telling you that you're kidding yourself if you think the nastiness doesn't hurt. Uh, how did? Uh, where did? Where did it go? How did you How did you manage to Did you have to dig deeper to nurture your sense of self? Yes, I had to dig
0: deeper. I think Jay
1: is uh, Jay Weatherall is a very
0: perceptive man on these things, and I had a very revealing conversation with him post my time in politics, and it did make me think how much of uh, the misogyny speech uh, was that suppressed uh, anger bubbling over, and I do think it played that role for me in a way that I didn't quite see as clearly at the time as I see now. And then I think I left with uh, some of that anger still in me but suppressed from being exhibited day to day And it was the retreat and the rest and ultimately the cathartic process of writing the book that helped me get it out. So, uh, yes, there are iterations of the book where uh, perhaps more of that spilled onto the page. And then when I looked at it again, I said, nope, we're deleting that. Hit, hit, uh, hit, uh, you know, the select and shade all of those paragraphs and now hit delete. They're all going. Um, uh, But... You know, you, you get to confront your own emotions head on when you do something as intensive as write a book
1: like that. I hope the unexpurgated version has been lodged with the National Archives <laughs> for uh, future researchers <laughs> to read one day. I mean, I, I feel this sort of overriding sense of guilt as somebody who was in the Labor, Labor team at the time for not speaking up more about the gendered attacks. What was going through my head at the time was that if you weren't naming them as, as having a gendered focus, that it would be a distraction for other members of your team to be doing so. Um, but then I had Anne Summers give the Fraser Lecture and she brought out some of the material that was later in her book where she basically said this is just a case of workplace bullying in which co-workers failed to speak out. Um, do you think there's lessons for... Uh, blokes in this sort of environment observing senior women being targeted based based on gender uh, and how they should they should respond? Uh, I'm less about trying to get my catharsis, as more about the sort of j- broader lessons that can be learned than that. Yeah, I think there are lessons to be learned and
0: uh, we should reflect on how much has changed. I mean, when I was in office, the sort of dominant media narrative uh, was that nothing about how I was being treated could be explained by gender. You know, nothing. It was irrelevant. I mean, journalists actually wrote that. Uh, And now here we are these years later and sexism in politics, are women being treated differently is a very lively debate. Now, it's predominantly a debate that's been spurred by a series of incidents in the Liberal Party. uh, But I don't think that anybody uh, sitting in the Canberra Press Gallery now would be saying to themselves as they put their fingertips on the keypad Uh, sexism's got nothing to do with anything here I think they're thinking it through Um, second you know the social media environment was comparatively new then you know um, Twitter started 2006 for example Uh, you know we were campaigning in 2010 and I think we understand a lot more about how gendered that environment is now than we did then And then third, I think we all made a bit of a collective error. I certainly made it. And, you know, once I'd made it, then inevitably I think members of the team would follow me in that lead, which is what you're referring to. I made the error that I thought the maximum reaction to me being the first woman Prime Minister would be in the early days of my Prime Ministership and then it would, you know, wash itself out of the system, equalise over time, whereas, you know, as we recall now, actually the gendered insult became more and more common the longer the government governed and the more you know political uh, heat there was around and the more measures to contest particularly carbon pricing Uh, and so I think with the benefit of hindsight it would have been better if all of us had named it and shamed it earlier but that's a lesson learned only through having lived through it. Um, What it now means I think is uh, absolutely we shouldn't wait Uh, co-workers, people beyond uh, the political life should immediately shine a spotlight on any unequal treatment of women in political life and we should all be campaigning to make the online environment a safer space for women.
1: What about uh, the environment? Very male-dominated environments where you're the only woman in the room. I mean, you said you often, as even as prime minister, found yourself being the only woman in a room full of blokes. Presumably, you didn't have the experience of being mistaken from on the catering staff, uh, unless they were particularly politically naive. Uh, but. Certainly women uh, will frequently find themselves in in that position. Do you have any advice for handling that? Should that just be shrugged off or is that... Oh, uh,
0: yeah, look, it's tough. It's tough. Um, I think one of the the lessons we've got to learn is that whilst women can call it out and an individual woman can call it out for something that's happening to her often the most powerful calling out is what happens by others. Mm. Uh, Because inevitably, um, if someone says, you know, I am being treated unfairly, uh, people will look at that and there's, you know, an element of self-interest and consequently doubt, you know, is she saying that because she's really feeling it, is she saying it because it's really happening or is there some other motivation to her saying it? Unfortunately, people will second-guess when individual women call out sexism. Now, I don't say that to dissuade women from doing it. I think women still should. But we should recognise the power of third parties calling it out. And the most powerful thing in that room, you know, one woman and a whole lot of blokes, would be for one of the blokes to say... You know, like steady on, mate. Um, you know, we—that's not the right way to behave. Let's get back to talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't have to be, um, you know, a, a angry um, exchange that breaks the discussion up and people pound out of the room. Um, there are, I think, plenty of more subtle ways of just, you know, marking the moment. Getting everybody to kind of nod their heads, yes, that was wrong, um, and then move to the next stage. So my advice to the woman would be, um, if she can, she should call it out. If she can't, um, and she knows she's going to be in those environments a lot, uh, try and reach out to the best of the male colleagues and encourage them to do it.
1: Mm. Yeah, well, it's a different area, but uh, sort of similar uh, approach. Uh, one of my friends, who's a partner in a big Sydney law firm, now says that they the male partners have decided on a strategy when they they're doing some childcare duties, like going off to pick up a kid, of making what they call a noisy exit. <laughs> um, so rather than slinking out, leaving your jacket on the back of the chair, as would have happened twenty years ago, you say loudly, "I'm off to pick up pick up the kids." you all know, it's in the diary, uh, uh, you can contact me on the phone if you need me, with the notion that if the male partners are doing that, that creates more of a space for a, a family-friendly culture in the firm.
0: And and that's a great thing, uh, and in, the research shows, and we do look at these things at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, that if there are family-friendly policies in a workplace, and they are disproportionately used by women, then there is a career penalty to be paid, a sort of mummy track, which is the second track, and the women using those flexibilities will get less promotions and advancement. Whereas if the taking of those flexibilities is you know, pretty equally shared between men and women in the business, uh, no one pays a career penalty for having taken them. So that modelling effect of men use these
1: flexibilities too is really important. Mm. And what's really struck me listening to you speak about gender is uh, the extent to which uh, in this, uh, the new institute, you've been focused on those twin issues of sexual harassment and child care, which seem to be play such a massive role in uh, in gender and gender gaps. Um, how do you? What's your ambition for the centre? Uh,
0: my ambition is that we become a globally uh, recognised go-to place for the best of evidence. You know, the newest tools, the most impactful ways of making a difference, so that women in all walks of life can come through for leadership and when they get there that their leadership is fairly evaluated, not through the prism of gender. And so we are looking at you know all stages of a woman's life and work journey. We're not just interested in you know how does the deputy CEO get to be CEO, or the deputy prime minister get to be prime minister or whatever. Uh, we're interested in you know from the first day you step into a workplace, what are all of the points when a woman is treated differently from a man and what can we do to clear away any of those barriers that are preventing her getting an equal go of coming through.
1: Mm. Uh, I want to step into how you how you work because uh, you've uh, obviously worked in the, in the most demanding job in, the, in Australian politics and you wrote after you left it that you wished you'd spent more time on what you called the cone of silence <laughs> uh, and uh, then equipping I think that, uh, that every good Prime Minister needs a Maxwell Smart uh, Chamber to step into. Uh, how, do you, how did you manage to sift the important from the urgent and what lessons do you think there are for others going into those intense demanding roles? I think this
0: struggle of shifting, uh, si- sorry, I think this struggle uh, of sorting through the important from the urgent is harder now than it's ever been in human history, and it's getting harder every year mm. uh, because the way the technology follows us everywhere, um, you know, and it's beeping and pinging at you, and even if you're on a really intensive task, unless you're very disciplined, your eyes will stray and you will look at that email or you will click uh, the alert that's come up on your screen. I think it takes more discipline as a result and in writing about my time as Prime Minister I think i found some of that discipline but I do wish I'd found more of it. You know the diary is very crowded, Uh, demands of people to see you and get you to do things are very legitimate, Uh, clearing space feels almost a little bit indulgent uh, but it's not, probably the most important thing that you can do and I do sort of uh, try and preach that a bit as I move around the world now to people who are in all sorts of occupations and walks of life and I think everybody's really struggling with it but there is a time to set the devices aside and just quietly think. Or do that with the, you know, best of your colleagues, uh, other thinkers, people you can learn things from. Um, This life that we tend to live now of frantic
1: activity I don't think is our best state. How long were you able to carve out as Prime Minister? How many hours a week or minutes a week?
0: Yeah, I would carve out, even on parliamentary days, I would carve out uh, a bit of time, you know, in the afternoons, an hour here or there. Um, in non-parliamentary weeks, uh, more. Uh, but it's, you know, looking back now, it wasn't enough.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, you have a sort of uh, stoic character to, to me in the kind of, uh, in the sort of Greek philosophical way. Do you think of yourself as a, as a stoic? So, you have that sort of emotional... Uh, strong emotional keel, you talk about purpose and perseverance and uh, hard work a great deal and you seem surprisingly unruffled by how others regard you.
0: Yeah, I think I am a Stoic person, but I know the word Stoic with it carries the implication of kind of, you know, grim, uh, you know, (laughs) Stoic in the Feast of Adversity, Uh, and I wouldn't want to give people an impression that uh, that's my life or that it's ever been my life. I mean, even in the most topsy-turvy times of politics, uh, there was uh, plenty of laughter. Perhaps some of it was gallows humour, but there was plenty of laughter and uh, fun and friendship involved too. Uh, so I've always wanted to um, have the opportunity to, you know, feel feel the joy and and get to do things in my life that give me uh, pleasure. But for me that hasn't been an endless um, array of uh, timeouts or frivolous things. I'm not someone who feels uh, best uh, lying on a beach reading a book you know every so often. Yep I like to do that but uh, really I feel best when I'm getting something done that I really care about and I'm really passionate about. Uh, so I have to you know, be careful that I don't let work completely consume me and once
1: again the people that you love and care about are very good at helping you find that balance. I think you said your motto was um, purpose, perseverance, and people. And I should say, you're extraordinary on the people side. Uh, the story I often tell people is uh, when I had my 40th birthday party in Parliament House, and it was the day of my birthday party, and I was walking down the blue carpet. You happened to come out of your office surrounded by a phalanx of advisors and smiled broadly and uh, burst into singing happy birthday spontaneously. (laughs) Now, I look back on the newspapers uh, just before this interview. Um, You just met the, the athletes returning from London. You were being attacked for a supposed backflip over asylum seeker policy, and yet you have this ability in this instant to see the world through the eyes of the person who is approaching you rather than through all the problems in your head. How do you manage to do that as, as Prime Minister, to keep on uh, radiating that sense of, of warmth to others rather than just letting these seriously big problems overwhelm you?
0: I think you've been very generous to me with that story, because if you were going to complete it, you would have said, sung incredibly off-key, happy <laughs> birthday. I don't have a very good singing voice, so I'm not sure that would have been the most pleasurable moment of your day. It was. <laughs> uh, uh, I, you know, family upbringing, uh, all of that, uh, really reinforced in me that, um, How you are interacting with others, whether you're making them feel comfortable um, or uncomfortable, really tells people a lot about who you are. Uh, My uh, father in particular was someone who uh, judged people very um, keenly not on how they would necessarily relate to him, or how they would relate to people of status that they viewed as even more advanced than their own, but how would they would relate to uh, the person serving them in the shop, uh, the waitress who was putting a cup of coffee in front of them. Mm. And he was always very, um, you know, quick to point out to us when people were uh, dismissive, uh, not not even as far as unkind, but just dismissive to those they viewed of lower status and having grown up as a village boy in a coal mining um, you know small town in South Wales I mean he knew what it was like to be the person that people viewed as the sort of bottom of the social order and so I've had that with me all of my life that I want to judge myself um, not on You know, how I relate to, you know, President Obama when I'm Prime Minister and he's here as President, but how I relate to all of my colleagues, everybody in my world, and particularly, um, and this obviously doesn't apply to you as a colleague, but particularly um, people who others would look at and say they're down the pecking order. Um, And, you know, have I been true to that every moment of my life? Uh, No, of course not, but I aim to be as true to it as possible.
1: And on to extend that, uh, that point, you did ensure that when President Obama visited Parliament House that he got to shake the hands of the two women that cleaned your office. Um, yes, and he was, uh, he was very generous about
0: that and they were completely overwhelmed and it was a fantastic moment to watch. I mean, out of uh, all of the highlights uh, in the time that President Obama came,
1: that one really stays with me. Yes. Yeah. I want to ask you about an issue that uh, you haven't said very much about. There was an Australian Story episode done on you in 2006 in which your mum recalled you saying at age 18, I don't want children, mum, I never want children. Uh, We don't often talk about the decision not to have children. Can you tell us a little more about yours?
0: Yeah. I I mean, this is a decision that's made um, sort of moment by moment. You know, I don't feel like I made it all in one uh, hurried moment as an 18-year-old, though I did have that conversation with mum. I do remember that. I was never the... Um, sort of clucky uh, girl growing up I was never the girl who wanted to you know rush and grab someone's baby or volunteer to babysit you know I I always liked kids but um, I was not um, like that many of my girlfriends and you know people from high school were but I wasn't so I think that probably fed into my grand announcement at the age of 18 to mum Um, and then across my life you in some ways make Uh, a set of small decisions that end up leading you to a big decision so absolutely wanting children was never a driver in my life Um, absolutely saying I'm not going to have children was not the driver Um, but you end up organizing your life your relationships in a way that you know piece by piece ends up making the decision for you if I'd felt a huge drive to have kids, then I would have had them. Um, if I'd been in a relationship where my partner had felt a huge drive to have kids, then we would have found ways of working that through and I may well have had children. Uh, but the you know life that I've lived has landed me here and I'm very comfortable with the decision uh, I don't um, have a sense of regret. I don't have a sense of wistfulness about it. I know many women my age who don't have children may live with that. I mean it's a big lifetime choice so everybody should try and make it right for them. Uh, but I don't have a sense of regret and I do have the, you know, privilege, the joy of um, sharing in the lives of uh, currently my great-niece and great-nephew, and before that my niece and nephew. So uh, because my sister had children, I always had the sense of a connection with the next generation and the next generation. Um, if neither of us had had kids, I think maybe uh, that sense of uh, wistfulness might have been with me, but mm. it's not now.
1: You've got some you can borrow and give back at the end of the day.
0: That's right, and um. they um, uh, they're
1: full of mischief and good fun, absolutely good fun. But do you think there is a sense in which society treats those who choose not to have children now a bit like we treated uh, atheists a generation ago? I don't think it's
0: a discriminatory sense Um Though, when you're in politics, obviously, I've had some moments of that, you know, Bill Hefnan calling me deliberately barren and suggesting how out of touch I was. You know, it, it's it's part of this conundrum for women in politics that there's really no right answer to the question, do you have children? If you don't, then, gee, you don't know anything about ordinary life. And if you do, who's looking after them? You know, Tanya Plibersek and Nicola Roxon and others would have had that question asked of them many, many times because they had their families during their political careers. Um, So I think there's that, but I don't think there's a big day-to-day discrimination. I think sometimes there's an absence in the public conversation. Uh, The public policy conversation uh, inevitably focuses on families and families with kids. Uh, And so I can imagine that there are many without kids who think, well, actually, is anybody talking about us? Uh, But for me as an individual, I haven't felt that strongly.
1: Yes. Uh, we spoke before about uh, your stoicism uh, and uh, and the role that played in your notion of leadership. Uh, I was curious in your views on uh, a thesis by a, a man by the name of Nasir Ghami, who published a book called A First-Rate Madness, in which he argued that uh, in times in which the world is in tumult, uh, mentally ill leaders function best. And he talks about uh, Lincoln, Churchill, Gandhi and Kennedy. Uh, and his point is is uh, not to reify their experiences of, of depression in particular, um, but to say that sometimes a normal, sane approach can can lead us lead us astray. Um, I'm curious as to what you think about that, both in terms of politics and political leadership in a time of crisis, but also as chair of Beyond Blue, uh, the extent to which uh, there's. Uh, a, uh, a normalising of one way of approaching the world as distinct from uh, recognising there's a diverse uh, a set of, a set, of appro- set of approaches to the world. I haven't read the book, so I'm always uh,
0: careful of critiquing the views of others when I don't understand them at depth. But I'd be a little anxious about that analysis in this sense, that it um, sort of points to people with a mental illness as if they are um, notably different from the rest. So, you know, leaders at a time of crisis, you know, Churchill and and his black dog, uh, notably different from the rest. And actually I think uh, leaders who struggle with mental ill health conditions are less noticeably different from everybody else because if we're truthful the prevalence of depression, anxiety, um, suicide, suicidal thoughts, if we look at the statistics in Australia we know that uh, struggling with these things is not a hugely atypical experience, millions of Australians uh, every year, every day uh, have, have exactly those emotions. I prefer in some ways to look at examples like uh, Churchill, um, John Curtin uh, and say look at what people can achieve even when you know in today's language we would talk about Churchill having a depressive condition um, he used his own language with the reference to the black dog um, in today's language we would be commenting on uh, John Curtin's uh, battles with alcohol and addiction and addictive personality problems um, you know look what they achieved I mean um, the the world in which we sit uh, we uh, owe so much to them for the decisions that they made and so I prefer that view, that prism, than the one in which uh, uh, you're putting based on the book.
1: Do you think different moments of history demand a certain uh, different different kind of leadership?
0: Yeah, I think our visions of uh, leadership are changing over time, absolutely. Uh, I think there are, um, I I think across the general sweep of human history we would say we have moved uh, ever further away from command and control styles of leadership uh, to wanting uh, enabling leaders, leaders that uh, give us a sense of inspiration, that offer us the opportunity to thrive, to be at our best. I think in workplaces, in politics, uh, people are looking for leaders that do that rather than the ones who, um, you know, across history, have kind of said my way or the highway. Um, it doesn't mean that there aren't still crisis moments where the skills of command and control leadership need to come to the, f- the fore. I think the judgment is working out which moment is you know call- calling for which skill and it's very easy for leaders to get that wrong.
1: Yes, when I was studying at the Kennedy School, Ronald Heifetz's model of adaptive leadership was uh, one that was, was heavily taught there, that notion that leadership is about providing a crucible in, in which a community can make a difficult decision. and struck me that there's a pretty strong gendered component to this as well, that, uh, that that command and control approach is more commonly employed by men and that the uh, notion of a leader as an enabler of society is more commonly employed by by women. Um, would, you, would you see some sort of gendered component to that?
0: I'd certainly see a gendered component now. I don't think the gendered component is inherent. I've never been a believer that somehow men's brains and women's brains are wired so differently that one will lead one way and one will lead another um, and there is some fantastic academic research around about this. Cordelia Fine uh, at the University of Melbourne writes powerfully, you, you know, her book Delusions of Gender takes you through all of that. Uh,
1: I but love I, the left-handed, right-handed example she gives. Yes, <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Um, but I do think in... Today's world where the socialisation of men and women continues to be so different, where the young boy is you know, encouraged for showing leadership tendencies and the young girl is told not to be bossy, um, I think that does mean that women tend to have more of the soft skills Um, and I think if they move to the more command and control style, the penalty they pay for that Mm. is Mm. a strong one, whereas a man who's got a command and control style, particularly if he's got the charismatic personality to go with it, will just be hailed as a great leader.
1: Uh, Just to wrap up Julia, what advice would you give to your teenage self? (laughs) Oh, you know, eat more
0: vegetables or something like that. (laughs) Um, uh, Always good advice, eat more vegetables. Um, I, you know, am happy enough with my life journey to say go with it. Uh, I wouldn't say to my teenage self, uh, you've got to, you know, definitely avoid this or definitely uh, do that. Uh, I would probably say uh, make sure you're not so restless for the next thing that you don't take some time to reflect on the journey to date Um, and it's really only in my life post-politics the writing of the book uh, some of the things I do now beyond blue looking at women's leadership uh, that I've given myself the time and space to be as reflective
1: about my own journey and perhaps uh, I should have done that at an earlier stage in my life. Do you feel you didn't enjoy the moment enough in those three years of prime ministership? Uh, I think all of us probably didn't enjoy some of the high moments enough. I
0: think we, me as an individual, but the whole team, and I think Labor is very wired for this. Um, we're like, OK, tick, job done, next. You know, we uh, know that being in government's uh, a privilege uh, for Labor. Part, the Labor Party is a privilege that doesn't come often. Uh, and so when we're there, we're just very keen to make the most of every minute. The You know, Paul Keating, not a day to waste, I think, we all live with that. Uh, So uh, I hope that uh, for Labor politicians of the future, whilst they continue with that energy and ambition for the nation, maybe there are some moments where they get to just uh, stop and say, we did that, and really just feel it, let themselves feel it.
1: Which is good advice for people outside politics too, I think. Uh, What's something you used to believe but no longer do?
0: Oh, gee, that's a hard question. Used to believe, but no longer do. Um, hmm, I'm really not sure. It does mean I've been very rigid in my beliefs across my life. I think one thing uh, I certainly used to believe when I was young, when I first came to grips with any understanding of feminism, I used to look and think, this is on its way to fixing itself, you know, it's inevitable. Um, And then I was exposed to things like Joan Kerner being Premier and so many women having great portfolios in her government, Carolyn Hogg in Health, for example. Yeah, this is on its way to fixing itself. You know, by the time I'm kind of in my 30s or my 40s, everything will be equally shared. Yeah, that belief's left me.
1: (laughs) We've, We've still got a lot more to do. Only one out of five Australian women call themselves a feminist. Only one out of ten Australian men call themselves feminists. I, I find it as, as befuddling as you do.
0: Yeah, uh, it's it's one of those words that's um, ended up picking up a lot of baggage and weight mm. over the years. But for me, you know, in essence, it means that you genuinely believe uh, that uh, the, the sexes are equal, that merit is equally distributed, and you're prepared to look at any institution that's ended up predominantly male and say something's blocked those women coming through. Let's get that blockage out of the way.
1: When are you most happy?
0: Uh, I'm probably most happy when I'm at home in Adelaide. Um, I am most happy because I've normally been off travelling and having many adventures. And then there's that wonderful sense of um, decompressing as you sort the suitcase out, get all of the laundry washed and just have that, ah, I'm back home.
1: What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy?
0: I really try and think um, about the the balance in life. So, you know, I never aspired to be uh, run a marathon kind of athlete. I was never the sporty kid. Uh, But I do genuinely believe that, you know, exercise, fresh air, getting out, you know, making sure that there's um, more in your day than being uh, hunched over a computer or endlessly in meetings uh, really makes a difference. And I certainly uh, like to spend some time drifting away into other worlds, predominantly through reading books. I'm a big reader and very much um, enjoy giving myself the time and space to do that. Do you still do uh, yoga? I still do do yoga, uh, and I've been known to lug a yoga mat to various locations. Uh, Fortunately, in today's world, many of the hotels in which you stay will, you know, have a yoga mat that they can provide to you. I've also been an investor in those mobile yoga paws, you know, so you don't take the whole mat, but you've got the little gloves and feet uh, coverings that can give you some grip and let you do
1: some yoga wherever you are. Do you have any guilty pleasures?
0: Oh, look, an occasional glass of red wine is a damn good thing. Uh, And if you're partnering it with a little bit of, you know, chocolate, Hague's in particular, uh,
1: that's a damn good thing too. And finally, Julia, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life?
0: Uh, Which person? I would say my father. Uh, Which experience? I would really say all of the tests that politics put in my way which tests in in particular oh you know every day you're making hard decisions where you've got to bring your values to the fore and that does require you to um, think think about your own ethics and to apply them there's lots of moments when there's a you know, uh, shoddier route in front of you Um, and it does take uh, thought uh, to get you to think what's the better route. Now I don't think that there's a politician in human history uh, that's uh, always made the right decisions faced with those choices but I'd like to think that uh, I and the government I led we were aware of the nature of those choices and tried to get them right.
1: That's fascinating. So you've written that resilience is a muscle but this is a notion of ethical decision making also being a muscle that you get better at being at making ethical decisions the more you make of them
0: i think that's true i think and i think it's one thing to um, have your ethics defined in your head as a theory it's another thing to test their application in hard contexts and environments
1: julie gillard thank you for taking the time to share your wisdom on the good life podcast today Thank you, a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.